Now, make sure you have your Bibles in hand. Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 5. If you forgot your Bible today, try to remember it next week. We always want you to see the Word of God for yourself right there in front of you. But you can raise your hand right now if you'd like a Bible. Barry will get you one to borrow. Looks like we need one in back. Right there in back behind the... All the way back, Barry, there's one more with his hand up. And uh, anyone else that needs the, the message notes, we always encourage you to have those out. There's some blanks to fill in. If you look at those message notes, they look a little overwhelming, don't they? Because you're going to need your thinking caps on today. We're going to dig into a meaty passage. This is not one of those passages that's a mile wide and an inch deep. If you're studying the Word of God, you don't get very many of those, do you? This is a deep passage, and so I need you to have the Bibles in front of you, ideally those message notes and a pen handy as we dive into God's Word today, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. Are you excited to study God's Word today? Good. You're going to need that excitement. Well, way back a few years ago, there was a certain Muslim cleric that came, uh, stepped up to the microphone and gave a rousing speech for Allah. His greatest desire was for everyone listening to his voice to commit their lives to Allah and become Muslim because he believed, hands down, Islam was the preeminent religion, the best religion on earth. And so he made this case for Allah, but interestingly, about halfway through his speech, he had some very nice things to say about Jesus. In the midst of his speech, he said that Jesus was a very good teacher, that he was a mighty prophet, and he was a very nice man. But then he proceeded to say this, Jesus never claimed to be God. He said, Jesus never claimed to be anything more than just a man. So let me ask you, is he right? Is he right that Jesus never claimed to be anything other than just a man? Now, honestly, if you search the Gospels in the New Testament, you will never find Jesus Christ speaking these exact words. I am God. You'll never hear him speak those exact words. But the question is, did he, in other words, make it crystal clear that he is the son of God, which translation means he is in essence and in nature God. Very little distinction. He's God. Did he, in other words, claim that? Did he ever claim to be God? Today's passage that we're going to look at is going to answer that question unequivocally. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Last Sunday, we took a closer look at Jesus's third miraculous sign. It's recorded in the first nine verses of John chapter five. You may remember if you missed the message last week there in the early verses of chapter five, Jesus heals a man in Jerusalem there by the pool of Bethesda, a man who had been crippled for 38 years. In other words, he'd probably been paralyzed for 38 years. That was like a lifetime back then. People didn't usually last much past the age of 40. And so for 38 years, he had been an invalid. Jesus heals him. And remember, that was one of the seven sign miracles that's recorded for us in the Gospel of John. We've seen over the last few weeks that whenever Jesus performs a miracle in the Gospel of John, John refers to that as a miraculous sign And it's always pointing to something. It's a revelation about Jesus, a revelation about who he is and what he came to do. And so there in John chapter 5, we saw the third of those sign miracles. It has to point to something. Remember the first sign miracle of Jesus back in chapter 2 was Jesus turning water into wine. 
And we saw that that sign pointed to Jesus' power over time and matter. That's pretty amazing, being able to transform plain, nasty taste in water into the best wine anyone had ever tasted. That's pretty miraculous to do in a moment of time. Amen? Something only Jesus could do. The second sign miracle we saw in chapter 4, Jesus healed the official son who was on his deathbed. And that sign miracle points to Jesus' power over sickness and disease. Aren't you encouraged that Jesus has the power and the authority to heal any illness or any disease or any cancer anywhere on earth? If someone you're praying for lives in Timbuktu, Jesus doesn't have to take uh, the Airbus over there and uh, take the flight, you know, get the next, next flight out of LAX and go over there to Timbuktu to heal that guy. He doesn't have to physically be there, right? Now, we know in spirit he's everywhere, right? Because he is spirit, he is everywhere. But Jesus doesn't physically have to be in the room. So we can pray, thank God, for people anywhere on earth and he can bring that healing. So what is this third sign miracle? Uh, healing this crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. What does it point to? What does it point to? Well, I want you to know that this healing of the man at the pool was not simply an act of compassion. If it was simply an act of compassion, remember it says in verse 3, you can go back and look at verse 3 of chapter 5, it says that there at this pool, there were many who were ill, those that were crippled and those who were paralyzed, right? And so if this was simply a sign pointing to how compassionate Jesus is, don't you think after he healed that invalid, he would have turned around and done something like this. Bam! And healed everyone on the pool deck. Wouldn't that have been awesome? There's probably dozens and dozens of people there with all kinds of illnesses. If it was just a, a matter of compassion, he could have healed everyone in a moment. But he didn't, did he? Why? Because that wasn't the primary reason he healed this man. What was the primary reason? Well, Jesus' third sign miracle reveals that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And therefore reveals that Jesus is God. Amen? Jesus is God. Amen. Did we not have enough seats together for that family? If not, if few of you could scoot over and if we could make room, that would be awesome. So if someone could be in charge of that, Barry, you want to take care of that? Thank you, sir. So his third, my, third miracle points to the fact that he's the Lord of the Sabbath and reveals that Jesus is God. Say that with me. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and therefore, Jesus is God. Now, if you're like many Christians, your favorite sermons are those that are really inspiring, but don't make you think too much, right? right. Let's be honest. We Americans are a little bit lazy when it comes to theology. We like to be inspired. We like to be fired up, but we do not want to have to think too much on a Sunday morning because this is my day to sleep in. I'm kind of tired. I went to bed too late last night. I didn't sleep too well. Any number of excuses. I didn't like the donut I just had before service. Whatever it is, we don't like to think too much. This is not that type of sermon. This will be an inspiring sermon, but it's going to make you think. So I needed to do something for me today. Put out your hands like this and go like this. We're putting our thinking caps on, right? Put your thinking caps on because I'm telling you, John chapter 1, remember that great theological chapter? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us and we beheld His glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. We go in John 1 and we, wow, that's some rich theology. That's deep theology. John chapter 5, the theology is, I'd say, every bit as deep as the theology in John chapter 1. So you need your thinking caps on. Otherwise, your eyes are going to kind of glaze over in about 10 minutes, and I'm going to lose you. I don't want to lose you. 
You're going to have to hang on, have those thinking caps on, and I guarantee you'll be blessed. Amen? Okay, I'll do my part and try not to fumble over my words too much and to accurately communicate God's Word, but it is deep. You'll need those thinking caps on. So here we are, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. With enthusiasm, if you're there, say amen. Amen. Here we go. Starting in verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words... And believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He is crossed over from death to life. Amen. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Okay? No one took their thinking caps off, did they? All right, let's dive in. Within minutes of Jesus healing the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem start griping. At first, in verse 10, they griped because the man who Jesus had just healed, who had been a crippled for 38 years, he was walking around Jerusalem, around the temple grounds, with his sleeping bag under his arm. They didn't like that. He's carrying a load on the Sabbath because it is the Sabbath day. They didn't like him carrying a load. That was against one of their little traditions and customs that their forefathers had passed on to them. But then that man who's been healed says, well, I'm only carrying it because the man who healed me told me to carry it. And so then those Jewish leaders shift their fury at Jesus. Verse 14, they shift their attack toward him. And in verse 17, Jesus says this, My father is always at work to this very day. And I, too, am working. We talked about verse 17 a good bit last week. Now, for anyone who might wonder why Jesus' words in verse 17 set the religious leader's teeth on edge, it explains it in verse 18. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So you with me still? Okay, so the Jewish leaders at this point begin accusing Jesus of claiming to be the Son of God. Fast forward about a year and a half. Jesus is there before Governor Pilate. They're in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders are yelling, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! 
crucify him. And Pilate asks, why should I crucify him? He hasn't broken any Roman laws. And this is what they say, these Jewish leaders in John 19, verse 7. They respond to Pilate and say, we have a law, and according to that law, Jesus must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. So, here in John 5, They are accusing Jesus of claiming to be the Son of God. And they claim that over and over again, all the way to chapter 19, when Pilate finally says, I wash my hands, you take him and kill him. I find no basis for murder. find no basis for punishing him by death. But you can do it if you so choose. And they decide to charge him with that very crime. He claims to be the Son of God. So the big question of the hour is this. Did Jesus ever really claim to be the Son of God? Are they off basis here with their accusation against Jesus? If Jesus was being falsely accused of being the Son of God, then here in John chapter 5, he had the golden opportunity to set the record straight. If they say, hey, you're claiming to be the Son of God, Jesus very easily here in John 5 could have said, whoa, fellas, you misunderstood me. I didn't mean to claim that I'm the Son of God. You misunderstood me. I'm just a fella. I'm just a guy. I'm just a regular Joe. So I just want to clear the air here. I am not really the Son of God. You know, get that out of your heads. He had that opportunity, but he doesn't do that in this passage we just read, did he? No, he doesn't backpedal at all. In fact, what Jesus does in this passage we just read is he doubles down. Not only does he reclaim to be the Son of God, what he does is give six claims that only God himself could make. And you may have missed those. This is a, a little bit of a, a quick, pa- quick moving passage. I had to study this over and over again, consult several commentaries. But I think I've been able to condense this into a way that we can digest a little bit easier in one message. And so Jesus here, I found, makes six claims. Number one, claim number one. You see this in verses 19 and 20. He basically says, my actions and God the Father's actions are identical. Read that with me. My actions and God the Father's actions are identical. Look again at this bold claim he makes in verses 19 and 20. Jesus says flat out, Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And the Father shows him all he does. Now let me ask you, can any mere mortal, can any human make this claim? That God and I do the identical things. I do the exact same things God does. In fact, God doesn't do anything without first consulting with me. Does any human being that's not completely nuts make that claim? God and I do the exact same things. What we do is identical. No human being can make that claim. No angel can even make that claim. Uh, The highest ranking angel in the Bible who's named is Michael, the archangel. Michael the archangel would never make this claim that God and I do the identical things and God never does anything without first consulting with me. No. Is there anyone in the Bible that made such a claim? Well, maybe one angel. His name was Lucifer. And we know what happened to him, right? He basically claimed to be as strong as God, to be identical with God. And what did God do with him? He gave him the old heave-ho. Kicked him out of heaven, right? He was banished forever and all the demons with him. And so, no human being, no angel would ever make this arrogant claim. So, the claim that Jesus makes here in verses 19 and 20 is not a claim that anyone would make unless they were nuts. 
claim number two. Verses 21 and 26, Jesus basically says, I raise the dead and give life at will. Read that with me. I raise the dead and I give life at will. Let me ask you, can any human or any angel truthfully make this claim? I can create new life and I raise the dead. No, they can't make that claim. Chuck Swindoll, I think, says it really well. He writes, this would be an outrageous claim for any mere human. Doctors can give medicine or administer treatment in order to delay death, but they cannot give life to a dead body, right? Only God can create something from nothing and then fill it with life. Only God has the power to restore life. That's true, isn't it? The Bible makes it clear that God alone is the creator and sustainer of earth. All you have to do is go to the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 says in the very first verse, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he proceeds to create everything in the universe, every star, every planet. He begins to create a life on earth. He creates every plant, every tree, creates every bird, every fish. Every amphibian, every reptile, every animal, and every single human being who has ever been made, God created. Amen? Amen. Jesus is saying He does that. That's a pretty remarkable claim, isn't it? In Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, God declares, See now that I myself am He. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. Check out this insight from Warren Wiersbe. I didn't know this before. The Jewish leaders said that Jehovah held the three great keys. The key to open the heavens and give rain. The key to open the womb and give conception. And the key to open the grave and raise the dead. They said, God holds these three great keys. And you can see those scripture references there. These are biblically based keys that they would teach about. Amen? Only God, wouldn't you agree, only God can create life in a mother's womb. Okay? Some people claim that, no, this is a human thing. Let's be honest with each other. The part that a mommy and daddy play in making a baby happen is like this compared to what God does, right? It's it, it infinitely small compared to the, the role that God plays. We don't know how to create life. Any of you ladies who have ever been a mother and carried a baby in your womb, you know you can't explain fully what's going on. You see that ultrasound and your jaw drops. How could that be going on inside my body? I have no idea how to create a baby. I know how to start the process, but then God picks it up and runs with it. I have no idea how all that works. It's amazing, isn't it? And then in the seventh and eighth and ninth month, you put the hand on the belly, husbands, and wow, I can feel the kick. I can feel the punch. And I'm glad I'm not a woman because this doesn't look comfortable. Only God can do that. Jesus says He can do that. It's a remarkable claim. It's a remarkable claim. Do you see that Jesus is in no way backpedaling on His claim to be the Son of God? Claim number three we see in verse 22 and also further down in verse 27. Jesus basically claims, I am the final judge of the living and the dead. Say that with me. I am the final judge of the living and the dead. And the dead. This is good stuff. In verse 22, Jesus claims that the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And in verse 27, Jesus says that the Father has given him authority to judge. So let me ask you, why is God the only one in the universe who is qualified to be the judge of the living and the dead? Why can't it be me? Why can't it be you? Why can't it be one of those great judges in the history of our nation? How about... Uh, 
you know, uh, Judge uh, Clarence Thomas. Been on the Supreme Court since the early 90s. Pretty good Supreme Court justice. The guy knows his stuff. Why can't Clarence Thomas be the eternal judge of the living and the dead? How about some of those other famous judges? My grandma, we called her Big Mama. In the 80s and 90s, one of her favorite shows was The People's Court. Big Mama loved Judge Wapner. Remember Judge Wapner? Some of you younger people are like, who's he? Well, up until about 20 years ago, he was the Judge Judy of his time. And speaking of Judge Judy, why doesn't she get to judge the living and the dead? You know, Judge Wapner, Judge Judy, Judge Clarence Thomas. Uh, how about Judge Simon Cowell? Yeah, America's Got Talent. He's, he's a pretty good judge on there. Oh, why can't these guys be the judge of the living and the dead? You know why? Because God alone has the ability to know every single thought in your head, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done. Amen? Only God knows you inside and out. Only God knows you better than you know yourself. So he's the only one qualified because he has all the evidence no one else does. Amen? Amen. And also the Word of God makes it clear that he's perfectly holy. He is set apart from the rest of creation. No one else could say they're perfectly holy like God can say he's perfectly holy. He is perfectly untainted by any corrupt motives or prejudice or sin. He's the only one in the universe who is perfect both in his love and in his justice. And sometimes I talk to Christians who are deeply saddened because a loved one has just passed away. And they're pretty sure that loved one didn't accept Christ as Savior and Lord. And they're concerned about their eternal status. And I think we can hold on to this hope. That even someone that rejected Jesus Christ, ultimately their fate is held in the perfect hands of a perfect judge. And that does not mean that if someone rejects Jesus Christ, they can make it to heaven. The Word of God makes it clear they can't. However, you know that their eternal destiny is in the perfect hands of the universe's perfect judge. He will judge you perfectly. He's going to judge the person next to you perfectly. He'll judge everyone in your family and circle of friends and neighborhood perfectly because he is the perfect judge. Jesus claims that he is that perfect judge. When Jesus makes this claim to be the eternal judge of living and the dead, he's really making a bolder claim than we may have realized. He is claiming to be all-knowing. He knows you and me, like I said, inside and out. He's claiming also to be perfectly holy, 100% free of all sin, all prejudice, all bias. And he's claiming to be perfect in both his love and his justice. Well, Jesus is really only halfway done with his claims. He makes a fourth claim in verse 23. Look at that. Verse 23 says, I am worthy to be honored just as God the Father is honored. Read that with me, please. I am worthy to be honored just as God the Father is honored. So what is Jesus getting at? Well, let me cut to the chase for the sake of time. This word honored is a very important word in the Greek. In essence, in effect, Jesus is claiming to be worthy of worship, just like God the Father is worthy of worship. Isn't that wild? Once again, no mere human or angel could rightfully make this claim. Jesus is saying he's worthy to be honored and worshipped. That's why after Jesus rose from the dead, a week later, remember, he appeared to all his, his disciples. Thomas, uh, we call him Doubting Thomas, hadn't been in the room a week earlier when Jesus had revealed himself. And so Thomas told the other disciples, I don't believe any of you. I will not believe that Jesus conquered death until I can put my hand in his side where the spear was and I can put my fingers in the nail prints in his hands. And so Jesus comes into the room. Thomas is there and he says, come on, Thomas, come on, go ahead, 
Stick your hand in my side. Stick your fingers in my nail prints in my hands. Go ahead. And you remember what Thomas says? My Lord and my God. And he falls and worships Jesus Christ. And Jesus doesn't do what any angel in Scripture does when an angel begins to be worshipped by a human being. Remember what the angels do. No, 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 no. Don't worship me. I'm a created being just like you. You worship God and Him alone. Angels will always redirect worship that's misguided on them and misplaced on them. They'll always redirect that worship to God. Jesus doesn't do that. He allows Thomas to worship Him. Why? Because He is the Son of God. Claim number five, verses 24 and 25. Every person's eternal destiny hinges on me. Say that with me. Every person's eternal destiny hinges on me. This is huge. Jesus will revisit this claim several times in the book of John. Over in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus, before he raises Lazarus from the dead, says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. John 14, 6, many of you probably have this verse memorized. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus makes this point over and over again. If Jesus is telling the truth here, where you spend eternity, you with me still? Thinking caps are still on? If Jesus is telling the truth here in John chapter 5, where you spend eternity has absolutely nothing to do with how good or how evil you live. That may be a surprise to some of you to hear. That's a surprise to most Americans. Let me say it again, in case you think you heard me wrong. Where you spend eternity has absolutely nothing to do with how good or how evil you live during this life. We've got this notion in America, if you are a good person, you go to heaven. If you are a bad person, you go to hell. Or, if you're around kids, you go to H-E double hockey sticks. So, that's what we believe, but Jesus makes it clear here, our good and our evil have nothing to do with where we end up. Some of you who were paying attention as we read this scripture, as you're looking down in your Bible, you might say, aha, I caught you, and saying something that's not true, Pastor. Look at verse 29. Look at what it says. Jesus himself says, those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Case closed. Pastor, you're wrong. Good, evil, yes, it does have a bearing in where you end up in eternity. And I still say, no, it doesn't. Now, let's not look at this from a human perspective. Let's put on our thinking caps and look at it from God's perspective. According to the Word of God, specifically the New Testament, what ultimately is the only sin that is unforgivable in eternity? Okay. The technical term is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let's put it in layman's terms. What is the only unforgivable sin? Rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Because the Word of God is clear. He is the only way to gain entrance to heaven. So God the Father has placed Jesus Christ and His gift of grace and forgiveness in front of us. And the ultimate unforgivable sin is the sin of shoving that gift back in Jesus' face and saying, thanks but no thanks, I'll live life on my own terms. That ultimately is the only sin that you could ever commit that could never be forgiven because that's your only way to be forgiven. You reject it, there's no other way. Amen? So that is from God's perspective what is the most evil thing you could ever do, rejecting His Son, Jesus Christ. You look at the other side of it, what therefore is the most good thing 
you could ever do in life. Accepting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So you're telling me that it is more evil to reject Jesus than to pull out a gun and shoot someone point blank in cold blood? Yes, it is. It's more evil than rape? Yes, it is. It's more evil than any other heinous sin that puts guys on death row? Yes, it is. The most evil thing you could ever do is shove the gift of grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ back in his face and say, I want nothing to do with you. The best thing you could ever do is not giving all your money to the poor. The best thing you could never do ever do is not helping a hundred old ladies across the street. The best thing you could ever do, the goodest thing you could ever do, is accepting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Are you seeing things through God's perspective now? Now then, let's revisit verse 29. Those who have done good will rise to live. In other words, those who have done the best good thing they could ever do, accepting Jesus as Savior and Lord, trusting in Him and following Him, they will what? They will rise to live. And those who have done evil, in other words, those that have done the most evil thing you could ever do, reject Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, they'll rise to be condemned. Amen? The Word of God is not disagreeing with itself. So in God's eyes, the one who accepts Jesus is good. The one who rejects Jesus is evil. It's as simple as that. Make no mistake about it. Where you spend eternity has everything to do with what you do with Jesus. Now, once you accept Jesus, you better stop living those evil things, doing those evil things you were doing and living that corrupt and wicked life because the blood of Jesus is not cheap. He gave you everything. The most precious thing he had to give. So you better be doing some good stuff as a thank you gift for what he's already given you. Amen. So your good works and your religion don't get you to heaven. But it sure is a mighty nice thank you gift to Jesus for what he's already done for you. Finally, claim number six. Hopefully those thinking caps are still on. Final claim he makes, verses 25 through 29. At the sound of my voice, every person who has ever died will be resurrected. Say that with me. At the sound of my voice, every person who has ever died will be resurrected. Some of you, if you're keeping tally here of these six claims, you might say, isn't this the same as claim number two? Claim number two, I have the ability, the authority, the power to raise the dead. No, this is a different claim. Claim number two, think of Lazarus. He's been in the tomb for four days. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. He raises the dead, right? But what happened to Lazarus 10, 20, maybe 30 years after he was raised from the dead? What happened to him eventually? He died, right? It's a temporary miracle. Did you ever think of it that way? Every miracle Jesus performs of a physical healing is a temporary miracle. He may heal you of your stroke, but you're going to eventually die anyway. He may heal you of your cancer. You may have stage four terminal cancer. He might heal you from that and extend your life like he did King Hezekiah in Old Testament times. But eventually Hezekiah died. Eventually you're going to die. So every physical healing is temporary. Jesus, with claim number two, says, I have the ability to raise the dead physically. In this sixth claim, it's something much huger. He says, I have the authority, the power, the permission from God the Father to resurrect every single human being who has ever lived. And it will not be a temporary resurrection. It's going to be permanent. I'm going to raise them to eternal life. Wow. Can any human being, any angel ever make that claim? Absolutely not. 
But Jesus makes that claim. So take all six of these together. Just imagine no human being would ever make this claim. Think about uh, your hero in American history. Maybe it's Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Think of another hero for many people. Mother Teresa that gave her life to serving the poor in Calcutta, India. Uh, Think of others like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Maybe the Apostle Paul. Would any of them even make one of these six claims? And the answer is... No, they'd never make these claims. But look at these six claims once again that Jesus makes here. So the first claim, he says, my actions and God the Father's actions are identical. Second claim, I raise the dead and give life at will. Number three, I am the final judge of the living and the dead. Four, I am worthy to be honored just as God is honored. Five, every person's eternal destiny hinges on me. And number six, at the sound of my voice, every person who has ever died will be resurrected. They accuse Jesus of claiming to be the Son of God, and he in no way denies it. He in no way backpedals. He doubles down, and he gives six claims that prove that he is the Son of God. But, in essence, he says, don't take my word for it. One more slide before we move on to the last part of this passage. The evidence is overwhelming. Jesus claimed to be God. There's no denying that. So the Muslim cleric liked to make this claim that Jesus was a mighty prophet. He was a good teacher. He was an all-around nice guy. Those are illegitimate claims. Because Jesus, there's no doubt about it, John 5 proves it, he claimed to be the Son of God. So if someone claims to be the Son of God, you really only have three logical options. And with your thinking caps on, I think you'll agree with me here. There's only three options, logically. Number one, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, so your first option is he was a liar. He was lying through his teeth. He knew he wasn't the Son of God, but he claimed to be. He'd be a liar. If you're not prepared to say Jesus was a liar, you've got a second logical option. You could say, well, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, but that's because he actually was delusional. And he thought he was the Son of God. He wasn't lying. He was just nuts. He was a lunatic. That's your second logical option. He was a liar. He was a lunatic. If you're not prepared to say that Jesus was lying through his teeth or was nuts, there's only one other logical option, and that Jesus Christ really was the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Creator of heaven and earth, the one and only Son of God. The one and only Son of God. It's really your only other option. And so. You've kept those thinking caps on for me. Would you agree? Those are your three only options because undoubtedly he claimed to be the son of God. He was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was a Lord. Now, if he's only making these claims about himself, his testimony might be suspect. Jesus understood that. And so the passage continues beginning in verse 31. Notice what Jesus says next. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth, not that I accept human testimony, but I remain, but I mention it, that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. 
for you do not believe the one he sent. Verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe it? How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Now, the Jews had this so-called law of evidence. And this law of evidence states that the unsupported evidence of one person cannot be taken as proof in a court of law. There must be at least two witnesses. That sounds biblical, doesn't it? That was in the Old Testament Mosaic law. That if you had a, for instance, a murder case, I couldn't say, uh, let's see, who am I looking out at over here? I'm going to see uh, Ron out there about halfway back. If I'm going to come to a court of law and say, I saw Ron pull the trigger and kill that guy in cold blood. According to God's law, Ron could not be convicted with one person's testimony. Okay, I could be lying, right? Maybe I've got a beef with Ron. I could be lying. I could be nuts. So the testimony of one person wasn't valid to convict someone in a court of law. And so the Jews latched onto this and they generalized it really to all matters. One man can't just testify about himself because he may be lying. He may be delusional. Any number of things. You had to have at least two witnesses. Amen? And so notice what Jesus does here. What we just read is a bit of a mouthful, but as I was studying this this last week, I realized that there are five different uh, testimonies that are given that Jesus highlights here. Five witnesses that, in essence, Jesus calls to the witness stand and says, my testimony, you're not going to accept what I say about myself. Verse 31, if I testify, testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. So he proceeds, beginning in verse 32 through the end of the chapter, and gives these five other witnesses. In other words, you don't believe what I have to say about myself? You don't believe these six claims I've made to deity? Well, listen to what these other witnesses have to say. And so here are those five witnesses. Witness number one is God the Father. God the Father. We see that in verse 32 and also further down in verses 37 and 38. You don't believe me. Some of you were there when I was baptized. And remember what happened when I was coming up out of the water after being baptized? The clouds split and then a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father Himself testified that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? There's God the Father's testimony. Secondly, the second witness is John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus mentions that in verses 33 through 35. John the Baptist, remember what he said. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at him. Jesus, right there, the Lamb of God. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. And then later at the end of chapter 3, remember what he tells his own disciples he said, Jesus surpassed me because he is before me. How could John the Baptist say that? He was six months older than Jesus. He was able to say it because he knew Jesus was eternal. Amen. Jesus was literally before him. Amen. And so John the Baptist was another witness. He made these claims about Jesus. How about witness number three? Jesus says, if you don't believe God the Father and you don't believe John the Baptist, at least believe the miraculous signs. Have you ever heard of anyone else opening the eyes of the blind? 
Have you ever heard of anyone else raising the dead? Cleansing someone that was a leper that could not be healed by any sort of modern medicine? Have you ever heard of anyone healing a crippled who had been paralyzed for 38 years? Look at my miraculous signs. They testify to my true identity. How about witness number four, the prophecies in Scripture? By this point in Jesus' ministry, here in John chapter 5, Jesus had already fulfilled dozens of Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. He had already fulfilled the prophecies about being born in Bethlehem, about being called out of Egypt, about being born of a virgin, about being a Nazarene, and dozens of others. He'd already fulfilled dozens of prophecies. He says, you go by the Old Testament Scriptures, you go by those, they testify about me. How about witness number five? He talks about this in verses 45 through 47. Moses, he says, he's your man. In your eyes, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I don't even know if they had sliced bread back then. But anyway, he's the greatest thing ever. Moses even testifies about me. You can find that out in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. Moses testifies about this coming great prophet who will surpass anyone who has ever lived. Well, Jesus, in essence, is saying here in this chapter, I am the creator and sustainer of all life. I am the judge of the living and the dead, worthy of honor and worship. I hold the keys of eternity, and at my voice every human being will be resurrected. But don't just take my word for it. Listen to the testimony of my Father in heaven. Listen to the testimony of John the Baptist. Pay attention to my miraculous signs that reveal who I am. And pay attention to the Scriptures and to Moses, who clearly point to me as the Christ and the Son of the living God. In verse 43 Jesus points out that the people of Israel had a track record of following false prophets. And sadly, Jesus spoke these words sometime around A.D. 29, maybe A.D. 30. It was just going to be about 40 years later, A.D. 70, that Israel would be conquered by Rome. And in that short 40-year period, the Jewish leaders, some of these very ones he's speaking to here, would begin following false prophets who claimed to be the Messiah. They followed the ones who were false, because they did not believe in the one who was true. Wearsby says it this way, because they rejected the true Son of God who came in the Father's name, they would one day accept a false Messiah, the Antichrist, who would come in His own name. If we reject that which is true, we will ultimately receive that which is false. This message isn't about end times prophecy, but as a side note, why are so many people going to buy the Antichrist lies hook, line, and sinker when he comes onto the scene? They're going to believe the Antichrist because they failed to believe the real Christ. And that's just a reality. Take these words to heart that Wearsby says here. If you reject that which is true, you will ultimately receive that which is false. Say that with me. If you reject that which is true, you will ultimately receive that which is false. Which leaves us with this one final question that is so important for you to answer. Have you fully and unashamedly reserved... Let me say that again. Have you fully and unashamedly received that which is true? Have you fully and unashamedly committed your life to Jesus Christ? Now that you've heard Jesus' claims for Himself, I don't want to hear any of these silly notions that Jesus was just a good prophet. Jesus was just a real solid teacher. Jesus was one heck of a guy. I don't want to hear any of those silly notions because the man claimed to be the Son of God. And so you need to make a decision today. And you only have three logical options. 
If your thinking cap is still on, you only have three options. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he was exactly who he claimed to be. King of kings and Lord of lords. He was a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Those are your only three options. And so sometimes people, especially atheists and agnostics, like to throw this out. Well, you know, I've considered the claims of Christ and... It hasn't stood up to intellectual scrutiny. That's a bunch of hogwash. There is not an intellectual barrier to accepting Christ. It is not a barrier of the intellect. It is not a barrier of the mind. It is a barrier of the will. And so the question is not, does the Word of God make logical sense? Do the claims of Christ make logical sense? That is not the question. The question is, what are you going to do with the overwhelming evidence that Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be? The Christ and the Son of the living God. It's a matter of the will. Will you receive Him? Will you trust in Him? Will you put Him in the driver's seat of your life and follow Him as your Savior and Lord? The choice is yours. I can't make it for you. I can tell you that I have made the wise choice. I can tell you that if you reject Jesus Christ, you have every right to do so, but that is a foolish, foolish choice. He's the greatest thing this world has ever seen. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the only one who can raise the dead. He's the only one who's the eternal worthy judge of the living and the dead. And the only one at whose voice one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What are you going to do with Jesus? Today is Decision Sunday. We've got one final song. As we stand together and sing this song, I know some of you have some decisions to make today. We had a few that wanted to be baptized. If you've made that decision to be baptized, just come up in just a moment. I'll meet with you briefly and get you all started so you can get ready for that baptism. Maybe you're here today and you've never made that decision to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord. I want you to come up. We'll have a few prayer counselors up here. Maria, if you can come on up. and We'll have a few others. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you if you want to accept Him for the first time. Maybe you want to rededicate your life. Maybe you've been backsliding. You say, you know what? I learned today, man, that Jesus is a lot more awesome than I gave Him credit for. I've been piddling around with Jesus. I need to start getting serious because He gave me His very best. I need to start giving Him my best. If you need to rededicate your life, today is a great day to do it. Or if you are a Christian, a baptized believer who wants to become a member of this church, it's a good time for that decision as well. Whatever that decision may be, whatever that prayer need may be, let's stand together as we sing this song, Humbly I Come to You, Broken I Come to You. As we sing this, you come if you have a decision to make.